Hello and welcome to More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. On today's episode, I talk with my friend Julia Harrell in my most freewheeling podcast conversation yet. Julia and I discuss some of the biggest challenges of our time, and then we dream about what a better world would look like. From democracy to education to the news media, Julia and I spend some time following Vaclav Havel's advice. We must not be afraid of dreaming the seemingly impossible if we want the seemingly impossible to become a reality. Check out episode one for some context to that quote. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that it prompts you to do some impossible dreaming of your own. Julia Harrell is an author, a freelance writer, and a stay-at-home mom to four young kids. Her book, How to Be a Hero, Trained with the Saints, is a kid's exploration of the power of the virtuous life. She is also the author of a series of four board books for preschoolers. Julia is a former teacher who loves talking about schools, education, and especially literature and the great books. She is currently working on two projects, a young adult fantasy novel and a nonfiction book exploring the role of story in forming the moral imagination. Julia lives outside Washington, D.C. with her family. Our conversation was recorded on September 25th. All right. Hello, Julia. Hi. Thanks for having me today. I'm so glad you're here. When I started this podcast, you were one of the first people I wanted to talk to because um, you probably remember, but we met via blogging. Like we both had blogs and we knew a lot of the same people. And I could tell that you were in Maryland. And so I reached out to see if you wanted to get together sometime. And we did, and we talked for four straight hours. <laughs> it's like meeting somebody for the first time, and you just have so much to talk about that you talked for four hours. So I was like, oh, Julie's a great person for me to talk to on the podcast. Um, not that we'll talk for four hours now, but um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a stay-at-home mom of four young kids. I used to be an elementary school teacher. Um, and I um, now I do some freelance writing. I'm an author of a middle grades book about the virtues. Um, and like you said, I am in Maryland near you after a stint away. I'm back where I grew up. Okay. Now today, um, we are going to be thinking big for this podcast episode. We are, for a little while, going to talk about the major problems in the U.S. right now, and then we're going to shift gears, and we are going to talk about potential solutions to those problems. Um, this is a throwback to a reference I made in my introductory episode where I talked about the dissident and one-time president of Czechoslovakia, Václav Havel, in which he talked about the importance of dreaming the impossible dream. If you want improvement, in a government and society, you need to dream impossible dreams. So that's what Julia and I are going to do today. We're going to talk about the problems, and then we are going to dream some impossible dreams. And um, they do not have to be realistic. <laughs> we don't have to expect that they're actually going to happen, but we're going to dream. So that's what we're doing today. <laughs> 
So to start with the depressing, we're going to talk about a few problems that we have in the U.S. today. So personally, I think we have problems in three main areas. One is division and the assumption that people on the other side are operating under ill will. Um, We have division on a partisan level, division on a geographic level, especially with a rural-urban divide and the fact that most Americans are surrounded by people that generally agree with them. So most Americans don't have a lot of real-world exposure to people who disagree with them. Um, We have division on a secular and religious level. We have social division. We have economic division. The second big problem I see is a distrust of news and information. There's a distrust of the traditional media. There are There's a real question about whether we can trust the newer online media outlets. And today, increasingly, there's even a question of whether we can trust official sources of information um, from the government or from educational institutions, etc. The third big problem, in my view, are sort of wobbly governmental institutions. We have a Congress that increasingly will not legislate and seems to have chosen partisan attachment over its loyalty to itself and its role in in the Constitution. We have an executive who is filling that void left by Congress and who's grabbing for power. We have a Supreme Court that is viewed as partisan. There's a real question as to how partisan it really is, but it's certainly viewed as partisan. And We have an executive branch that seems to be shifting from having a view of serving the country to a view of serving the president. So those are my big three. And I know you have got some great additions. So what what do you think are the big problems we're facing in our country? Um, So I think the first thing that sprang to mind is that we are increasingly interacting with others online, only online or primarily online. Um, and that trend has, of course, intensified over the last six months with COVID. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that when we interact with people only online, we sort of have a tendency to dehumanize them and to reduce them to their opinions or, or those of their opinions to which we are privy based on what we've seen online. Right. And really just a boilerplate version of their opinion. Right. Like a, right. A not fleshed out one. <laughs> right. Not a nuanced, thoughtful. Right. Um, and, and so then instead of seeing someone as a friend or your aunt or whoever, um, mm-hmm. now you see them as a person who has the wrong opinion about today's very important topic. Um, right. And I think that really leads to a sense of, are you on my team or are you on the other team? Right. Or I thought you were on my team. Why did you say this? Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and I mean, I, I see even in myself, someone who I really like as a person and I enjoy their company and consider them a, a true friend. And I'll be so annoyed by something that I see. Mm-hmm. And it's completely unreasonable and irrational, <laughs> you know? Um, but so, yeah, I think that um, really not interacting with real people um, and instead interacting with, um, you know, their online persona is mm-hmm. a, is a major problem. Uh, yeah. And then um, I guess the second big problem I see is that um, culturally we no longer really have a, 
a set of shared premises and assumptions that we're operating from. So when we try to have a conversation about something, um, when we talk about some hot button issue or some really complicated social problem, we end up just talking past one another because sometimes we're using the same word to mean different things. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes we don't foundationally agree on what is and isn't important or what is and isn't most important. Um, And so we can't get anywhere because there is no ground that we're both standing on from which we can begin. Right. It's almost like we're, in some sense, it's almost like we're speaking different languages, you know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, entirely different sets yes. ideas that we're functioning. Yes. Yeah. Or, or, or that we're, we're speaking two languages, but it sounds like the same one, but the words mean different things yeah. in different, you know? <laughs> A lot of false cognates. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and then the third thing is I think that we um, are in a place where people are making decisions and um, about their beliefs and, um, and opinions based on sort of emotional responses to how they feel about something, to who's telling a good story, um, to their response to a narrative. And we're very tempted not to think things through from a rational and logical perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are really vulnerable to falling prey to sort of good advertising, if you will, mm-hmm. um, or good marketing, because we're relying on how we respond to people and to stories that we're hearing and not really to a rational assessment of the actual situation and facts. Yeah. I remember when I um, first started interacting on social media, like I'd see these things, you know, where they say like this, if you believe X, Y, Z or, or whatever. And it was like, I would say in my head, that is emotional manipulation. (laughs) And, and I refuse to participate in emotional manipulation, but I feel like increasingly almost everything we're seeing is emotional. Yes, yes, it absolutely is. So it's hard to have that rule anymore. <laughs> yeah, yes. So I think those are sort of my big three. All right. Well, we have certainly laid out a very rosy view of <laughs> what's going on in our country right now. Um, so let's shift gears. I, t- I mean, to be honest, when I think of our future currently, um, everything I see is bleak. Like I don't personally have a lot of hope for improvement and I'm sure that's a, a fault on my end. Um, but I think a lot of people are in that place right now. You know, you look forward and things just seem so bad and you think, oh my goodness, how can this ever change? Because each of, each of the problems seems so insurmountable. Um, but we, I think we really should recognize that if we don't start to dream a little and we don't start to think about what might be better, then we're never going to get there. (laughs) So we have to start somewhere. We do. So I have had this idea for a long time and it's really corny, but I love it. And that is that I think it would be so helpful if we had like a domestic exchange program. I thought of this originally for Congress and then I was like, oh, they'd get voted out of the out of office for even participating in it. But I um, <laughs> I like I think it would be so helpful for members of Congress to like visit districts that are nothing like their own, you know, like. Mm-hmm 
have a farmer from um, Oklahoma come visit an urban Baltimore City district and get to know some of the people in each other's districts and the problems that they encounter and like to sit down for a meal with people like to go to a you know a pig roast or go to a um a you know a fish fry at a church or something you know to kind of just get to know some people in places that are really different from where you live so i think that would be really helpful in congress but i think it would even be helpful for like regular americans and i, I almost wish that were sort of an opportunity especially that like um I mean, I think it'd be great for adults, but I mean, especially like for college students or something to get to do that, to, to really get to know places that are nothing like where they're from, you know? Mm-hmm. So. No, I agree. Um, I think, you know, when we see representatives um, f- from say an urban coastal region um, and then we have other representatives from a rural farming community somewhere, it's, it's hard because these representatives are people too. They're just humans like mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. And I think, it, you know, it's hard to understand that these other representatives constituents have, they might be different concerns than yours. They probably, mm-hmm. many of them probably are. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's not because they're lazy, stupid, selfish. What You know, it's their day-to-day life looks very different. Um, right. And some, a lot of times in ways that, if you've always lived in the same kind of place, we really can't even imagine without yeah, some experience of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I even think this could be helpful even within political factions. Like um, there's a big difference between like a swanky um, New York City Democratic district and an impoverished Detroit Democratic District, you know, yes, I mean, like, yes, even within parties, there's a variety of experience. And I think that people need to get to know the other. So but especially across parties. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think one thing here you and I both agree on is the need for improvements in our civic education. And one thing that I think about is I think about the um, the importance of context. Like that's one thing I keep trying to get at in this podcast is I think it's, we just have our kind of narrow view of what the United States is and what its um, political issues are. And I think um, it's important to get a historical context and also a global context. And I think, you know, I see so many people who are super patriotic and are convinced that the U S is the best country on earth. And hey, I love this country (laughs) and I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. And I am inclined to be proud of my country. But sometimes I think people sort of wear their patriotism, but only think of it in like a really broad way. They just think of like freedom and prosperity and I don't know. But I think like America is a great country because I can go get a driver's license and not have to pay a bribe. Right. Right. (laughs) And like I can, I can get a building permit and not have to pay a bribe. (laughs) And you know, whether or not people believe it these days, I can cast my ballot and trust that it's going to be counted. And, you know, like the basic building blocks of our government and system generally work pretty well. I mean, as many insecurities as we have these days, like at least we can trust that there's not this like overarching, you know, all consuming um, culture of 
um, corruption, you know? Yeah. So I think it would be helpful for more Americans to understand what government looks like in other parts of the world. And then maybe would be we would be a little bit more careful with our current system. Right. <laughs> so that we don't right. lose the good things that we have. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's striking to me how often people don't really understand how the government works or um, what the role of the different branches are. Um, I mean, I consider myself an educated person, but sometimes I have to ask my, my husband's an attorney and he, he's very into government. And, um, and so I'll say, but how does this work? And he has to explain it to me, you know? <laughs> so then I'm thinking, okay, I can't be the only one who doesn't understand some of these yeah, things. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that was one of the stated goals of the American public school system at its outset by Horace Mann was, mm -hmm. was citizenship training and um, mm -hmm. making a representative democracy possible in the first place. And we've almost entirely lost that sense. Yes. I mean, like, yes. social studies is an afterthought. I think yes. most probably wouldn't even think about, like, civic education right. as being a part of a goal. Right, <laughs> right. Education these days. It's all about forming workers. Yes. Taxpayers. Yeah. Yes. But no, definitely. I mean, I think a lot about, um, I think it would be really helpful to have easily digestible information about how government works. Like like you said, I mean, there's a lot that people just don't know. Um, and what makes up the U.S. economy, um, what taxes, what the tax system is like, how government spending breaks out. I mean, you hear people sort of ascribe to this general idea of lower taxes, um, but they don't even have a basic sense of what our taxes go to, you know? Right. And like, you know, like a huge chunk, at least on the state and local level, of government spending goes to education. And yet you have a ton of people say, I want lower taxes, and a ton of people say, I want more spending on education. And those two things just don't go together. Right. You can't have right. both. Right. <laughs> and in fact, if you want lower taxes, you have to accept that something that is currently being done doesn't happen. Yes. Right. So I just think most people just don't have any idea about where the spending goes and um, how a tax cut might impact current spending. So. But I don't know, that goes to you, what you said about understanding how our government works. Right. You had more to say on education, right? Yeah. Um, one thing that I was going to say is I would love to see in schools a move sort of away from what, you know, you were saying, just job training, mm -hmm. um, producing mm -hmm. good workers, mm -hmm. um, because there absolutely is a place for vocational training. Mm -hmm. Um and it's extremely important and, and worthwhile, but it isn't really what we mean by education. It's sort of a different thing. Um, and I would really love to see a return to the concept of a liberal arts education mm -hmm. um, and specifically reading more fiction and, you know, the great books, the mm -hmm. um, literature from, from the great tradition, because I think you had mentioned earlier that it's really important for us to be able to look at things in cultural and historical context. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that reading literature that comes, um, you know, over thousands of years time span for starters um, and all over the globe, 
is able to give us that sort of context for starters. Yeah. Um, but then also there's a lot of social science research around um, how reading literature affects our brain. And um, it's pretty consistent that uh, literature increases empathy, um, that it increases social skills and pro-social behaviors, um, that it allows us to be able to understand other people's motivations more accurately. Um, Because I think, and then this second part is speculative on my part, but I I think that's because (laughs) it, it allows us to get behind someone else's eyes. Right. Sure. Um, Yeah. You know, in the real world, you can sort of only know what a person tells you. I mean, you can make assumptions and guesses, but Mm -hmm. um, when you're reading literature, you have these complicated characters and and you're sort of seeing things from behind their eyes. Um, and they're not just good guys and bad guys. They're like real people who are complex mm-hmm. and um, have mixed motivations. And, and in, in a non-threatening way that doesn't require you to be like, am I picking someone who's on the right team? Are they on my mm-hmm. side? Mm-hmm. Um, you're able to see things from, from a different point of view um, and understand the way that other people tick, um, and, and what motivates them. But, but it's in such a way that you, you don't have to make those calculations of, but is this someone I'm supposed to like? (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's a great way to learn about different experiences and to understand all the different calculations that people make and, um, the different things that can inform their decisions. And yeah, I I think that's a great point. And I had not thought of it, the importance of fiction. Yeah. (laughs) I, I, I love that you mentioned, you know, liberal arts. Like I, I never really thought about the liberal arts much until I went to a liberal arts college, but I'm so glad I did. So I just felt like, um, it just really prepared me to try to grapple with the world, you know, and to, to process the ideas that were going to come to me and to formulate ideas of my own. And I think it's, it's so valuable and so underrated today. (laughs) Yeah. And I think um, also, you know, I had said earlier that we're sort of lacking this shared starting point. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, in a country like America, which is extremely diverse in every sense, geographically, um, racially and ethnically, religiously, socioeconomically, in all these categories, we're coming from really different places. Mm -hmm. Um, But the great tradition, you know, of the great books, Homer, Dante, that gives us a starting place um, from which to understand what it means to be human. Um, So that you could have like that shared foundation. Right. right. And and they're not... um, you know, certainly there's also ideas of what it means to be American, um, but but we're not a country that's really small and homogenous to where we all have really similar life experiences and we all have a shared history over many, many centuries. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, that's not the way America works. Um, and so I think tr- trying to look bigger in terms of a shared starting point is important. And I think th- the great books that have um, that have remained a part of the canon for centuries, um, 
in some cases, millennia, I think those have something to say to everybody. Right. Absolutely. And I do see a criticism sometimes that um, when you focus on the great books, you are sort of, um, you're necessarily limiting yourself to like a European heritage or something. Um, I think there's a lot of value in that canon. Um, and I think it's worth pursuing and I think it's perfectly acceptable to add to it. You know what I mean? Right, like right. there are certainly great pieces of literature that are still being written. And there are also great pieces of literature from non-European cultures. Um, I think it's would be wonderful to add them. I don't think you need to diminish what we currently think of as the great books in order to, um, you know, in order to have a full scope. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's I mean, it's important to have all of it. Yes, and and I don't I don't subscribe to the idea of like, you know, if the author isn't dead yet, it's not worth reading. Right, right. <laughs> um, I mean, in terms of what what lasts, it takes time to know what lasts, sure, right? Yeah, but that doesn't yeah. mean that we shouldn't read anything that hasn't already lasted for, for centuries. Right. Um, right. or it, you know, that we shouldn't read things from different cultures. Certainly we should. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's, that's only going to help people have more context, you know? Right. So. And I think a, a lot of the, um, the quality contemporary literature, so much of it um, draws on the great books mm-hmm. that, that you really, you miss a lot of what is being, um, being said and communicated if you're not getting the references. Ah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, You really, like, if you start reading Shakespeare, you're like, huh, so pretty much everything is a reference to Shakespeare. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If it didn't come from Shakespeare, it came from the Bible, but that, you know. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's helpful to have an understanding of all the layers um, behind the ideas that you're taking in. Yeah. 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 Um, um, a big, you know, as I mentioned, the, the second of the big problems that I mentioned are a distrust of the news. And I think that is often my stumbling block when I think about how we might improve. I think, oh, but nobody trusts the news. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, how are we going to improve our information sort of situation if if no one will trust the news? Um so I don't know. I I think personally, I think that there should be, I think almost the whole system needs to be restructured. Like I think there should be more of a distinction between data and analysis. Um, you know, it used to be when conservatives complained about um, the liberal media, they didn't mean that the liberal media were lying. What they meant was the liberal media was putting a slant on news and information. They were reporting what happened and casting it in a light that was unfavorable to conservatives. I can totally get behind that. I see that happening even now. I listen to a lot of mainstream news sources um, and I appreciate the information I get from them, but I can also identify the slant and it I'm used to it, but it still bugs me. Um, today when conservatives complain about the liberal media, that's not really what they mean anymore. Today they think that the liberal media is just full of 
quote, fake news. You know, it's right. just made up. Yes. And that's a more dangerous place to be getting to. Like, um, I I may disagree with the way the New York Times puts something, but I don't think they would publish outright lies. I think they are going to do their best to report the truth. And if they get something wrong, they're going to print a correction, you know? Right. And um, but unfortunately today, a lot of conservatives just won't even look at a big swath of news outlets because they've labeled them li- them liberal. So I think we need to get away from this idea that outright news provision, information provision is, you know, tainted by a political label. Like somehow we need to, you know, like C-SPAN is a great, um, is a great thing to pay attention to if you're willing to sit and watch a whole hearing or right, a whole right. speech or something. But it would be nice if news could be presented in a very sort of stripped down way. Here's what was said. Here are the basics. Nothing flashy. Nothing that's programmed to get you riled up. Just like here's the basic data in information. So it would be good to separate that out from more of the analysis. And I think with the analysis, it would be helpful to be really open about what the um, journalists' political views are. Like, I think a lot of journalists like to pretend that they can be totally unbiased. And I I appreciate the ones who work hard at it, but we are all human. and yes. We all bring our biases to the table. So that's sort of why in this podcast, I've tried to be open about my own opinions because it, that's helpful information for somebody who's listening to the show to sort of say, okay, well, she, this is what she believes. So I'll take that, you know, with right. a grain of salt. I just think it's helpful information to the news consumer. So I would love if, you know, people who are analyzing the news, and I think it's perfectly legitimate to analyze the news. We need people who are well-informed and who are paying attention to what this new information means in in the scope of the the whole politic. Um but I think they should be honest about where they're coming from. Um, I also think that news organizations should be open about the range of ideas that they consider acceptable. Like, I think um, a lot of the mainstream media, they have a range of acceptable ideas that is narrower than a lot of Americans. Yes. So they, you know, from everything from, I mean, especially when you're talking about marriage and abortion, Yes. You know, they have they have a much narrower view about what is socially acceptable than most conservatives. And I think many Americans really. Yes. And so yeah. when a more conservative American listens to the mainstream news and they hear what they consider to be a perfectly reasonable opinion cast off as outside of the bounds of acceptable opinion, it's just offensive and they turn it off and I don't blame them. I get it. (laughs) So I don't know. I I almost wish like each news um, organization would like say a bar, like here's what we consider the acceptable range from this end to this end, because there are definitely ideas that are out of bounds. Like I don't, I'm not saying that any news organization should be like, oh yes, white supremacy is acceptable. Like absolutely not. (laughs) I don't think that should be acceptable in our society. But I do recognize that that is like a point on a line. And I wish news organizations would be explicit about what they consider acceptable. <laughs> right. And, um, and I think when we're, not, when we're not upfront about that or we just rely on cancel culture to silence the people who say things that we don't like, right. um, all that does is sort of create this 
underground shady place where these ideas then become promoted and people use their um that sort of fringy status as a recruitment tool like you know um there's a reason that the internet is used by white supremacist groups um you know in secret facebook groups or websites right, right. to sort of recruit people because um you know if people say something that might not be outright white supremacy and i w- i would agree with you that, th- that that's not an opinion i'd like promoted on a news source mm-hmm. um but they say something that is outside the socially acceptable the current socially acceptable bounds and they um and they get canceled for it then of mm-hmm. course what happens well um y- you know they go and find sort of the underground places where the where you can say um you can say things that are generally considered distasteful but what you find there is usually more radical um more and it sort of festers and builds yes. on itself yeah yes. like yeah that's interesting it's i i think you're almost saying you know like like the um more restrictive um general media culture is almost promoting like a black market yes. information yeah. culture you know yeah mm-hmm. um and i think that's also now why you see some of these internet based news sources that are not um you know they're not the New York Times or the Washington Post, and right. and they and they're not going to print a correction, right? <laughs> and they're not going to care if they get it wrong. Yes. And they're, yeah. I mean, they're going to outright name call and insult people in yeah. something that is supposed to be informational. Um, right. And but people who have been um, sort of driven out of the mainstream conversation. I think they feel safe in those places or they feel like, you know, right. here's people who understand me. Um, I think it's important to um, for us to allow a, a diversity of ideas, um, even ones we find distasteful. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And again, I'm not saying that, you know, I want the New York Times to print an editorial in favor of the white supremacist worldview. I'm, I'm certainly not saying that. Um, but I think sort of our practice of having dogmatic beliefs around what's a really narrow, acceptable idea to hold about something um, and then excommunicating anybody who doesn't adhere to that um, really it results in the kind of divisions that we're talking about um in in sort of people drawing lines and retreating into their own camp and their own tribes um and we can't really hash through what's a good idea what's a bad idea and why right it's it's important for us as a society to be able to talk about our ideas and increasingly we have a situation where we can't and um that's just inherently harmful. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I think, and I think it's perfectly fine to tell someone that their ideas are bad ideas. Right. Um, yes. And, and I think we should, and, and I think that's sort of one of the problems, you know, that I see with our solely virtual interaction is that we end up saying you're a bad person. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's being a bad person and holding a bad idea are not the same thing. 
Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we see people who are really bright and really committed to their own ideas, they are still capable of having a conversation about ideas with people with whom they disagree. Um, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia have this this well-known friendship. Um, Clearly, in terms of jurisprudence, they're very different. Mm -hmm. But they talked about ideas. They argued about ideas. Um, They didn't say, you're stupid and malicious because you don't Mm -hmm. agree with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think after Scalia's death, Ginsburg had said that he made her better in terms of her articulation of her ideas. Um, when, When she would write a dissent after she had talked to him about it, it was better. It was clearer because because there was an exchange of ideas because they tried to understand one another um sure i mean that's one of the advantages of a democracy is you take people with differing ideas and you make them work it out (laughs) and increasingly we can't work things out because we won't talk to one another because we won't um subject ourselves to opinions that we don't hold and it's just like it's it's so destructive. <laughs> yes. I, I see people all the time say, if you think whatever, you can just unfriend me now. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, mm. so first of all, I very much doubt in real life if you would say to somebody, yeah, if you have a different opinion on this, you can just get up and get out of my house right now. Right. Like, right, you right. wouldn't say that. Right. Um, but also – it's not productive. <laughs> if you really believe that that this idea is really dangerous, really bad, really threatening to our society, democracy, whatever, then then make, argue it. <laughs> right. Con- convince the other person that they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> make your point. Make right. Think about your point and try to make your argument better. You try to yeah. clarify your own thoughts. Um and and listen to what other people have to say. That's and I'm totally guilty of this. In an argument, I'm just planning what I'm going to say next. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and that is not that is not how we understand one another better. That's not how we make progress. Uh, right. Trying to right. That's under an impulse we all need to check within yes, ourselves. Yes. yes. Um, trying to get to understand someone else's position is much harder. It's very uncomfortable, um, especially if it's something that you really are just passionate about. Trying to, to get in someone else's place and see things from their position is really uncomfortable. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I definitely found when I was a lobbyist, probably the most important thing I could do was to try to understand the other side. Because if... I understood what motivated the people who were opposed to me, then I could better answer their concerns and I could better convince them, you know, because, you know, I would have to go convince legislators who were not inclined to be with me. I would have to convince them that I was right. And in order to do that, I had to understand where they were coming from and what their concerns were. And I had to be able to apply um, my own goals and my own ideas to what they were going through. And if I didn't listen to them, I wouldn't accomplish a thing. Right. And I'd be bad at my job. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> it's it's just, yeah, if you want to make a difference, you have to be able to 
argue your case well. And in order to argue your case well, you have to be able to understand where somebody else is coming from. And I think one of the things that really prevents us from from being able to understand other people is this attitude of scorn and sarcasm and contempt. Yes, yes, um, yes. Because the whole, you know, sometimes I'll see some satire piece or a meme that really zings someone and I'm like, oh, haha, that's hilarious. Um, but the thing is, is that it's really you laugh when it's when it's getting someone that you consider an mm-hmm. ideological adversary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it really appeals to what is most base in us. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it, you know, as soon as you are calling people names, they're not listening to you. Yeah. Um, as soon as you have called someone a monster. Or, you know, so they're done. They're, they've, Mm -hmm. they've checked out Um, because no one experiences themselves as a monster. So if you call them that, then they just feel free to say, you don't get it. I'm done. Yeah, I have sometimes responded to things on on Facebook, probably unproductively, but I have sometimes (laughs) responded to things on Facebook where they're really going after somebody or, um, you know, dishing scorn out. Yeah. And I have said like, do you really think this is an effective way to convince them of your position? Right. Like, like if you're, if you want to convince them, then try to convince them. This is not convincing to anyone. And, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think they've appreciated those comments, but still (laughs) I think they were worth making. (laughs) Well, I, um, it's, it sort of reminds me. So I've seen, um, psychologists, therapists talk about how in a marriage, the major predictor of failure of the marriage is contempt. Um, Mm, You know, mm. like married couples disagree about things. There's no married couple ever who didn't disagree about anything. Um, But you and your spouse have a shared goal, which is a a life together, right? So um, if you want to make that work, you're going to have to accept we disagree about some things. Um, there's some disagreements we're never going to resolve. They're just we're just always going to disagree about this thing. Um, but but being contemptuous and dismissive, um, shutting them down, freezing them out, those things end up killing the relationship. It, the relationships can't survive right, absolutely. that. Absolutely, yeah. So I think if we if we see ourselves as um, as sort of in in a marriage of of the American experiment, if you will, yeah, yeah. Um, it, you know, if we want to have a shared life, we're going to have to accept one that there's some things we're never going to agree about um, that are going to, to constantly come up as as sources of friction, uh, but that in order to work together um, and in order to have an ongoing shared life, we are going to have to treat one another with a degree of respect and care and not just resort to this kind of like, you know, making you the butt of my jokes. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember in my sort of college years, young adulthood, I was um, around a couple families where um, 
I noticed the spouses being really dismissive of one another and um, showing contempt for one another and sort of pick, pick, picking at each other. And um, I sort of observed that at that point in my life and resolved that I was never going to have a marriage like that, you know? (laughs) So when um, my husband and I got married later, you know, as you're a newlywed and you're trying to figure out how to deal with one another, um, I, you know, after some initial difficulties, you know, I talked it through with my husband and we both agreed that that was not how we wanted to live. And we have ever since then made a really concerted effort to, value, you know, to to remember the importance of our relationship in any of these disagreements. That's not to say you don't disagree, but that you value the importance of your relationship first and you you take care of it. You like treat it gently. And I often think the same way about our civic culture. Like if our democracy is important, if this relationship between the people of our country is important, then we need to be careful with it. That's not to say we don't disagree even even strongly. Um, but we need to take care with how we go about disagreeing so that we are building up a relationship and not tearing it down. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I, when I sort of go back sometimes and read about the, the founding of America and our and our, the the design of our form of government, it really is, even though you're like, yeah, yeah, I learned about this in fifth grade. Then you go back and you're like, wow, this is actually really incredible. Like, (laughs) um, but then I also think that it's really important more so than in, um, you know, say a medieval European monarchy. It's important that, um, as citizens that, that we are virtuous people, um, Mm -hmm. because we're choosing our leaders. Um, and so we're generally going to get what we as a group deserve. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so if I'm just always indulging that base part of me that wants to mock people who disagree with me and just, you know, indulge in self-aggrandizement and mm-hmm. um, if only everybody was as wise as me <laughs> um, <laughs> that 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 isn't going to work out well for the American way of life um, our way of life is really relies on the people being good people um, mm-hmm. because we there isn't we do, there isn't a king who's going to tell us here's how you should do it. Instead, we're going to elect people who tell us what we are asking them to tell us. Um, right. And so, I, I tr- trying to not indulge sort of that lowest level, you know. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And um, you know, when you said uh, talked about the importance of us being good people so that we can choose good leaders. Um, that leads me to another, another sort of dr- impossible dream <laughs> that I've been thinking of here. And that is that um, I almost wish that there were like essentially citizens review boards for various institutions. Like, you know, we, we hear about a citizens review board for like a police department or a local body of some sort, but like, what if, major newspapers had like citizens review boards made up of people of various opinions who could, who could sort of meet with the editors and say, 
I see what you're getting at here, but do you realize that you just nearly alienated, you know, a third of right. the U.S. population, you know, right, <laughs> like right. to, to give honest opinions. Um, so in both in media organizations, but even within the government, like I think um, we have and I talked about this in a previous episode, but we have like internal watchdogs in the U.S. government in inspectors general. But like, what if we had these like citizens review boards for the Department of Justice and the Department of of Energy and, and all sorts of things? I mean, I'm not saying that like a random citizen is going to be well equipped to give high level direction, but they could give feedback and they could say, well, here's something you're missing or here is a concern of a lot of people that you have been overlooking, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. So I don't think that like regular Joes should replace expert opinion, but I think that they could help sort of provide a broader scope and context as far as what government agencies should be doing. And I think they could also like um, sort of share with the public, like, okay, here is my layman's under this. Here's what I've learned as a layman and a, a member of this citizens review board, like, let me share with you what this agency is doing that you may not understand. Let me put it in layman's terms, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. I don't know, to sort of both inform the agency, but also provide a window into it for the regular citizen, you know? Yeah. Um, I think you can become very insulated. Um, and so I think if you're the expert, you can lose sight of the fact that most people have no idea what what you do that or that anybody does, that this is a thing what you do. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Or why it's important. Um, and then and you can sort of lose sight of the way that the things that you say are perceived. Um, because people don't people may not understand that um, what you're doing why that's important to, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so I think sort of a trusted go between, um, that improves communication. I guess I think that that would increase trust maybe, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and help sort of the experts to understand the optics of the way that they say things, right? Um, yes. because yes. Th the optics do matter. Um, right. people are going to receive the message based on how well you deliver it. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, and you can very easily alienate huge groups of people with one little verbal misstep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, another big problem I mentioned, um, at the beginning was Congress. And I really think that somehow Congress needs to be like recommitted to itself. Like, I don't know how to do it, but like <laughs> maybe every, um, representative and senator needs to sit through like a detailed uh couple of courses one on the history of <laughs> what their of job their, is <laughs> yes exactly like the history of their institutions and how they have over time interacted with the executive branch and the judicial branch but also like what other legislative bodies around the world do and um and, you know, and there's a huge variety there, but I just think that increasingly Congress has lost its idea of itself and essentially it just thinks of itself as a bunch of like lieutenants for the head of their party, yes, you know, and, and yes. like, like let's, um, 
let's just institute our party platform by whatever means necessary. And that's just not how our system was designed to work. It's just right. not. Like our some other countries do have systems that are designed like that. Ours is not. Ours is like explicitly designed so that the different branches of government can keep each other in line. Like that's what it's right. for. Right. And we have lost that because we they have lost their sense of who they are. And like yes. they need somehow to rediscover it. Um, yeah, your job is to make law. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you would almost never know it, but like sort of like the schoolhouse rock boiled down version of what yes. before, we've totally yeah. lost sight of it. Like the legislative branch is to make laws. The executive branch is to implement those laws. They don't direct them. They are meant to implement, implement. Yes. what the legislative branch does. And then the judicial branch is meant to, you know, deal with disputes. It's right. not supposed to make laws itself. It's supposed to just sort of uh, balance between the other two and reconcile differences. Right. <laughs> and differences between what the legislative branch puts out and the Constitution. So, yeah, we've really lost sight of it. And, um, and I don't know, we need some like heavy duty recommitting to just like understanding who we are. And yes. We <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we need other electoral reforms. I mean, um, I'm not sure exactly how to do it, but right now, you know, we have what seems like a huge majority of people living in districts made up of people um, like themselves and they have every incentive to elect um to elect like a distilled version of themselves to yes. send to Washington and be true only to this one particular idea and not to compromise. Don't you dare compromise. I will not elect anybody who compromises, you know? Right. And, um, and because of that, because we have so many of these people who are representatives of communities that are so different from one another and they're all given this directive not to compromise, then they can't get anything done. Right. <laughs> and it just, it just defeats the point of having a democracy. So somehow we need to figure out how to elect people in a way where we can have more flexibility and more of a recognition of the diversity of ideas in this country. Yeah. And, and when we see um, elected officials who do compromise, then they start getting insulted by these, um, yeah. by people who are just diehard partisans right. um, all the time. So I don't know if you follow governor Hogan's Facebook page, but yeah, <laughs> don't just don't read the comments. <laughs> the, like, no matter what he says, someone starts ranting and raving about how he's a rhino, and um, they regret that they ever voted for him. And it kind of cracks me up because I'm like, okay, well, first of all, your other option, like, if your problem is that you don't feel like Hogan is conservative enough. Your your other option was not going to be an improvement on that. Right. For starters. Right. right. For for those who don't know, so we're in Maryland. Governor Hogan is the moderate Republican governor of very liberal Maryland. So <laughs> the only the only kind of Republican governor we could get here would be moderate. That's just how it is. And yet, of course, conservatives are unhappy that he's too moderate. So 
<laughs> right. And, he, and I mean, I just see the way he gets castigated. Yeah, yeah. For governing, for, yeah. you know, for representing the people of Maryland. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I don't think he's, this isn't like a, a commercial for Governor yeah. Hogan. I mean, I, I don't think he's perfect, but I just see how because he compromises right. um, and works across the aisle to accomplish goals, mm-hmm. he just gets castigated by people. Yeah, um, yeah, and and that is not productive, um, right? It's like a de- it's like a denial of reality. It's it's just it's saying I'm going to pretend I live in the world I prefer as opposed yes. to the world I'm actually in, and I'm going to act according to that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I think also we have started to see. Um, I think it used to be that if someone's another American had different politics than you, you still sort of recognize that we're both Americans. We, we do have right, like right. some shared goals and values and ideas about the way the world should work and the way our country should work. Um, but now I think there's a lot of people who just see um, the other party as the enemy and we are going to triumph over them. Yeah. Well, no, that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually not the way our system of government, it, it isn't supposed to be this one party, like one party wins and then they rule forever. That, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Yeah. I almost think that there, I'm not saying it was a good thing, but I almost think that there was an advantage like to the Cold War in that um, even as many disagreements as you might have with your fellow Americans, you were still sort of like on the same side. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Democracy and liberty. And, and, um, you could sort of put yourself together against this like foreign adversary. And we have been living in a much more uncertain world for the mm-hmm. past few decades since the collapse of the Soviet Union, where we are, you know, we were at first sort of the only game in town and, um, and then we started interacting with other phenomena and countries, you know, in the, in concerns about terrorism and, um, and now the rise of China and again, Russia and <laughs> difficulties with our alliances in Europe. And, um, and I feel like sort of, we don't have any overriding sort of foreign boogeyman. And so we have almost nothing on a domestic level to join up against. And we have no incentive to see our fellow Americans as fellow Americans because now they are our primary adversary. Yes. So I'm not saying the Cold War was a good thing. I'm just saying that, you know, it's, it is a little difficult, you know, if if you are seeing the worst possible enemy in your fellow Americans, you know? Yeah. Prosper, yes, prosperity sometimes leads us to um, yeah. <laughs> to to make issues where where there previously were not. Right, right. Um, yeah. So electoral reforms. I mean, a lot of people have talked lately about ranked choice voting. I don't know whether it's the best idea, but it is an idea. Um, redistricting, gerrymandering. I mean, you and I. I mean. Today, most people think of gerrymandering as something Republicans do to create extra Republican districts, but the fact is it's done by Democrats too. You and I are in one of the, I think, two most gerrymandered states in the country here in Maryland. And for those who don't really know what the term means, it means that you that the um, party in power 
draws legislative districts so that they best increase its chances for uh, for for votes. And so you might have a district drawn to grab one particularly liberal neighborhood or to carve out one particularly conservative town or whatever. And they end up creating these districts that look like salamander, essentially, is where the name yeah. came from, um, or that look like, you know, a cloud or a blob or you yeah. know, a squiggle. I mean, we have a couple districts here in Maryland that I think are just laughable. Right. <laughs> when, when you look at they span like five counties in like little teeny stringy segments, they're ridiculous. Right. And um, – I don't know. I think like in in general, we should try to use, you know, county, town, lines, wherever possible and try to make them as as sort of, I don't know, as much like a square as you could or, you know, as much as yeah. approximate the county lines or whatever as best you can and just sort of let the chips fall where they may because anything else I think is just disingenuous. And uh, uh, at any rate, that's that's a mess. And I would love to see some ideas about how we could try to um, have an electoral situation where people actually have to compete with their ideas, you know, Mm -hmm. that they have to actually make a good case and convince people and um, reach out to people they disagree with and help improve their communities. I mean, that's another problem with gerrymander districts is that there's no real sense of community. And how is this person who lives two counties away and only has my street in my county, how are they supposed to be advocating for me? You know, we sort of need to return to an understanding of community um, and that our elected representatives are supposed to be representing communities um, not their party. Right. right, right. You know, and so, and yes, when we, then we get these, these ridiculous districts, um, that, I mean, it, it literally looks like someone just took a pencil and like outlined each house that might vote for them, you know, or like splattered paint on the wall too. (laughs) It's ridiculous. And all that does is that serves parties who want right, to right. increase their own power um, mm-hmm. instead of serving the community that the, that an elected representative is supposed to be serving. Right. Um, and, and then it's just a power struggle of how can I grab the most power for my team? Um, mm-hmm. Because especially in local politics, like a lot of what comes up, even the most divisive things are not, um, they're frequently not easily assignable to a liberal or conservative point of view. But so if the elected official has been elected to represent an area that isn't cohesive, then they're, they're not, they can't serve that area. Whereas, you know, if, if they're elected to represent this County, um, or, or, you know, this half of the County or whatever, um, mm-hmm. They can respond to their constituents' concerns in a way that actually reflects their constituents' needs, as opposed to what their party may feel about this. But even the people in the party have a lot of disagreement with it because it's more relevant to their local situation than it is to a bigger ideological divide. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my pretty rural area is currently represented in Congress. 
by someone who lives almost an hour away in traffic and um, who, who, who really, whose base is a much more urban liberal um, audience than, than where I live. And, um, you know, I think, I mean, I think under the situation, he does a good enough job trying to reach out, but really he doesn't really have an incentive to try to serve the people in the more rural conservative parts of his district because the district was specifically drawn not to need us. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Well, um, I have one more pie in the sky, impossible dream. And I don't know if you have any more, but (laughs) my last one is that I would love to see more ideological and philosophical variety in pop culture. (laughs) (laughs) I just think, um, you know, we just have such divisions, even in pop culture, you know, I mean, Hollywood is so liberal. Most of the music industry is, except for country music, which is so conservative. (laughs) And I just think um, it would be great if we had more variety so that people didn't turn on the TV and roll their eyes and say, oh, that's Hollywood. You know, like just, you know, just, I'm not saying that you're going to agree with everything, but it would be nice to not have to blame a whole big important segment of our culture as being against you, you know? Right. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes you'll see some like 17 year old pop music celebrity makes a statement about something and yes, conservatives go, well, it's just some Hollywood, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then liberals are like, yay. Right. You know, yeah. uh, and it's not, that doesn't serve, you know, I, someone may be a really gifted musician or actress or whatever, but that doesn't actually make them qualified to make statements about public policy. Right. So like, mm-hmm. I think it's one of those things that's like a, I don't know, we've talked about sort of cheap patriotism before, Mm -hmm, and it's mm -hmm. sort of like a, you know, a a cheap rallying cry of either like, yay, this, you know, this is what good people think, or, oh, this is just ridiculous Hollywood propaganda, right? And so it's just, it's just cheap. Um, Mm -hmm. And it allows people to just easily and without cost reinforce their own predispositions or prejudices. And I think it also drives what we were talking about earlier, that sort of like black market, um, black market for ideas. You know, like I just think it, it, when people feel alienated from the culture, they're driven underground and it just sort of feeds a culture that will tell people you're targeted they hate you. You, uh, yes. you know, yeah. um, there, there must be something bad going on there. Like it feeds all the conspiracy theories, like yeah. the whole, like, Oh, Hollywood and the liberal elite are kidnapping children. Yes. And drinking their blood. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, you know, we have gotten to a place of absolute absurdity in, you know, the motivations and the crimes really being ascribed to other people. But, I think it starts out by people feeling alienated, you know? Yes. Yeah. And it would be good if people didn't feel so alienated in the culture writ large. So they right. didn't feel the need to seek out companionship in these shady places. Right. Or, or And if people didn't feel like asking a question about um, – or sort of saying, but what's wrong with um, – this idea or so for example i saw somebody say on facebook 
Um, and I, and I happened to know that the person who was speaking was an older adult who said, but all lives, and they were absolutely sincere, mm-hmm. but all lives matter. Mm-hmm. And they, they got, I mean, you know what happened. So, mm-hmm. And it's, I understand why that's not an appropriate response. I understand that it's dismissive. Like I, I get it, mm-hmm. but the person saying this was genuinely asking. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not intended to be dismissive mm-hmm. of Black Lives Matter. And so- And like an, a, a good solid explanation would have served the situation better right. than accusation yes. or whatever. Yeah. But then right. when you just tell people they're a racist for asking that question- Right. It, it drives sort of that- like black market of ideas we were talking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Um, because then people feel victimized. Um, mm-hmm. They feel humiliated. Um, they've been called names. And so of course, you know, the, the natural response is to look for people who will tell me that I'm okay, that I'm right, that I'm okay. Right, right, right. Um, and of course, you know, the appropriate response to people does, it, it depends on their intention and what, you mm-hmm. know, um, but we don't need to every time somebody says something that we don't like or that we think is wrong, we don't need to, like you were saying, assume ill will. We don't need to do mm-hmm. that, you know? Right. Yeah. I think we would, and maybe this is a good place to end on, but I think, yeah, if we could do one thing to improve the state of our society, it might actually be to assume goodwill from other people, you know? Yeah. To say, you know, and who knows? Maybe some of them really do have bad will. But if you, if we at least assumed goodwill from the people we disagree with, we start off on the right step yes. in like engaging with that person. And that can only help, you know? Right. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe I that dream is probably both possible and impossible. But maybe if each of us could try to assume goodwill, then we can at least make some small measure of progress. Yeah. (laughs) It's a starting point. It's a starting, got to start somewhere, right? (laughs) Well, I have really enjoyed this, Julia. Um, Man, it's kind of nice to to think about the the beautiful and impossible when you're sunk down in all the (laughs) dreariness and drudge of, uh, of, of today's politics. But oh, did you have anything else that you wanted to add? Um, I guess the one thing, um, and this is related to assuming goodwill, I think if we could commit to, to trying to sort of have people who disagree with us or people who are just people who are different from us, um, Mm -hmm. as part of our life of, of not living, not living in an echo chamber, a self, you know, a self-designed echo chamber, um, I think that would really help us to to assume goodwill because mm-hmm. when we when we get to know people it becomes apparent that most people are well-intentioned which doesn't right. mean that they're not wrong or we're not wrong but most people um most people are not malicious right. um and so I think that trying to make a commitment not to deliberately self-isolate ourselves with people who will think all the same things as us um, see the world exactly the same as us and just reinforce, you know, everything that, that we already believe that, that, that really 
helps us to assume goodwill with other people with whom we disagree, but maybe don't know quite so well. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. And it, it helps, I mean, it helps us, but it also helps that person that we're engaging with, you know, I mean, friendship is a two way street and um, yeah, more of these friendships can, I think, go a long way to helping our culture more broadly. So that's a great idea. All right. Well, Julia, I have really enjoyed this. And even though it wasn't four hours, I'm really glad <laughs> we got to sit and talk for a while. And I would love to do so again. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Well, thank you so much for your time, Julia. Sure. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Julia Harrell. You can find a link to Julia's website, book, and social media accounts in the show notes. I hope you'll go check them out. On next week's episode, I'll be sitting back down to talk with my friend, Dr. Jill Scheibler, for another edition of the Kitchen Sink Pundit. This time, Jill and I will be discussing the presidential and vice presidential debates, as well as the president's COVID diagnosis and the state of the presidential race with less than a month to go. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Than Politics. I hope you'll subscribe to it and that if you like it, you'll leave a rating or review so others can find it. I'd appreciate any shares, too. Your help is the best way to let others know about the podcast. My name is Julie Varner-Walsh. I'm your host. You can learn more about me by checking out my blog at thesewallsblog.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at Julie V. Walsh and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast. If you have ideas for topics you'd like me to cover or guests you'd like to hear from, please email me at julie.walsh.thesewalls at gmail.com. This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.